We're very glad to see you here, and we're delighted to welcome Gary Marcus back to Baltimore, his hometown, and to the Pratt. Gary was here three years ago uh, when his first book was published, and it's my pleasure to uh, introduce the lady who organized all of this, his mother, Marilyn Marcus. Unaccustomed as I am to public speaking. I am pleased, proud, and honored to introduce my son, Gary Marcus, today to talk about his new book, Clued, The Haphazard Construction of the Human Mind. I'd like to introduce his dad, Phil Marcus, in the back, photographer, among other talents. <laughs> Gary is a native son, born right here in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins Hospital and educated in the public schools in the city. He attended Barclay Elementary School, Roland Park Middle School, and Baltimore City College High School. <laughs> when he was little, I used to take Gary for storytelling hour right here at the downtown Pratt on Saturday mornings. Gary played on the Hamden Little League team. We didn't have one in Charles Village. And his first job at age 15 was as an usher at Memorial Stadium a thrill to him as he was an Orioles fan from an early age. Yay. <laughs> Gary left City College, left Baltimore, left home at the end of the 10th grade at age 16 for an early admission to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. He graduated from Hampshire at age 19 and went straight from there to his father's alma mater, MIT, where he earned his PhD in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science. In the 15 years since that time, Gary has taught at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and at NYU, New York University, where he's currently full professor and director of the Infant Language Laboratory. Gary's now a married man, his lovely, light, his lovely wife, Athena Vulamanis, is with us today. Originally from Montreal, Athena is a neuroscientist, has taught at McGill University in Montreal, and is now on the faculty at NYU. Gary has published a number of articles in professional journals and has written four books so far. <laughs> he is here today to talk with us about his newest book, Kluge, which was just released last month. Let's give a warm welcome for my talented son, Baltimore's native son, Gary Marcus. Um, that, that's sort of hard to top. Um, I've never been introduced by my mom before. That was a very lovely introduction. <clears throat> um, let me one second here for one thing that we forgot to set up. So I'm going to talk today about an optimistic view of the human mind. And if you uh, caught the cover, you might expect that I'll talk about a less optimistic view of the human mind as well. Sound is okay? Everybody can hear me okay? Or should I make it just a little bit louder and closer? Um, so Shakespeare may have been kidding when he put these lines in, in Hamlet's mouth, but he said, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty. And there's a certain strand of that kind of optimism in evolutionary psychology, which has become a very um, popular endeavor and is, is um, sort of informed cocktail party chatter everywhere. Um, so you see a version of this in 
uh, a book that was written by my graduate school advisor, Stephen Pinker, called How the Mind Works. And the way the book starts is it talks about the parts of the mind that allow us to see, and he says that they are indeed well-engineered, which I think is an undeniable fact. So you can compare human beings to robots, and human beings have much better vision than robots do. We're much better at seeing what's out there in the world and making sense of what, what we see out there. I would never, for example, trust a robot to drive on I-95 around, or on the Beltway. Um, robots just don't have the same ability to quickly identify objects in sort of busy scenes and so forth. So our, our visual systems are quite spectacular. They're also very sensitive to light, so we can see in a very dark room, and if you try to take um, a picture with a camera in a dark room, you get a lot of shake and so forth. So our visual systems are really quite well engineered. Then Pinker argues from there, um, he says, and there is no reason to think, and I always put my hand on my wallet when somebody says there is no reason to think, um, there is no reason to think that the quality of engineering progressively deteriorates as the information flows upstream. So the idea is if our visual systems are evolved to be very effective, then maybe the rest of our brains are too. And of course, I'm going to um, challenge that later. But before I challenge it, I want to show you that um, Pinker's not alone in these views. Um, Noam Chomsky has said the same thing in recent years about language. He said, language appears to be surprisingly perfect, coming close to what some super engineer would construct given the conditions that the language faculty must satisfy. So Pinker and Chomsky are sort of two of the biggest uh, people in my field, and they've both been arguing for different reasons um, that we might expect some kind of perfection. Chomsky is arguing for this largely on mathematical grounds or elegance grounds. So Chomsky has in mind physics within grand unified theories of physics that people have been trying to make in recent years, reducing everything to some kind of simple and elegant solution. Pinker is thinking more about evolution, which I'll return to. And you see this also in the technical literature. I won't bore you with the papers that I have to um, put up with, but um, for example, one uh, very influential paper said many of the major characteristics of human cognition can be explained as an optimal response. Um, another one said that human behavior is close to that predicted by Bayesian decision theory. And if you read, like, The Economist or something like that, you start to see this term popping up in the last few years, Bayesian decision theory. And basically what it suggests is that we would be able to make our decisions in an optimal kind of fashion. Um, and it is certainly the case that some of the decisions that we make are very careful, might arguably be optimal, but um, it's not the case that, that all of our decisions are optimal. I'm actually going to skip this one. Um, I'll come back to the other one. Um, it, it's, it's pretty obvious that some of the decisions that we make, we, we come to regret later, or we come to regret that other people made them in the first place, perhaps. And it's not, it's not just the president, right? It's, um, the president's uh, reasoning processes are perhaps not beyond reproach. Um, but then again, nor are, are many of the voters. So um, there, there are many things about the human mind that, that seem a little suspect. Um, uh, as Bertrand Russell put it, it's been said that man is a rational animal. All my life I've been searching for evidence to support this. So you, you sort of see the boundaries of the two views. I'm going to go back a slide. Um, the optimistic view comes from, I think, a faith in evolution. And of course, it's a funny sentence to say faith in evolution, um, since evolution is supposed to be a scientific account and not um, faith. But the, the argument that is made in the evolutionary psychology literature, and that's often assumed there, is because evolution does what's called hill climbing, and I'll explain that in a minute, um, it tends to choose the best of the designs that are available, and because there's so much time for evolution, hundreds of millions of years, you eventually expect that evolution will cause what it says here, the accumulation of superlatively well-engineered functional designs. And if you read about evolutionary psychology in Time magazine or something like that, if you read a sort of general public version of it, that's 
I think, the assumption that's always behind there. You get some explanation. You say, why is it that humans, why are males promiscuous and females more choosy? Well, it must have been optimal for our ancestors to balance things in that way, and that's why this kind of thing evolved. Um, So it's a common assumption in the evolutionary psychology literature um, that humans have evolved to, to be optimal. So you've already seen some of the counter evidence. Um, so the, the question is, um, what gives? How do we reconcile this idea that evolution is, is optimal and efficient and so forth with the manifest clumsiness of the human mind? If evolution does such a good job, why is it that you know, people can vote for that guy on the left? Um, the, the first problem, I think, with this optimistic view is that it's confusing two things in evolution, some things that are very old and some things that are very recent. So the visual system... It's not just humans that have vision, obviously. Just about all animals have some kind of visual system. And vision has a very long evolutionary history. Vision has been around for hundreds of millions of years. So you don't just find it in humans. You don't just find it in apes. But you find it in just about any animal that you might look at. So evolution has had a long time to debug the systems of vision. But if you look at, say, language, our ability to do abstract reasoning or formal logic or figure out how to vote, well, obviously, we're the only species that does any of that. We're the only species that votes. We're the only species that takes SAT tests. We're the only species that talks like this and the only species that sits around in, in, you know, on a nice Saturday afternoon and tries to learn something about itself. So all that kind of stuff, that's only been around for something like 100,000 years. Um, so compared to the eye, which is 100 million years, 100,000 years in, in evolutionary time is sort of chump change. It's not a lot of time to iron out all the bugs in the system. So that's the first problem, I think, with the argument that says because vision is, is well organized, we should expect the rest of the mind to be well organized. The second is it just represents uh, – whoops, that's not where that slide's supposed to be. Um, the, the second is that <coughs> – Evolution as hill climbing, this common metaphor, is a little bit oversimplified. So let me first tell you the common metaphor. You may have heard it before. Um, There is a book by Richard Dawkins called Climbing Mount Improbable that I think captures this metaphor. The idea is that at any given point in time in evolution, you're somewhere on some mountain. Let's say you're right here. um, And some random stuff happens. And if the random stuff is beneficial to your species, then your species as a whole inches its way further up. If that stuff is not beneficial, then nothing changes. The offspring that were less efficient, they don't survive. Survival of the fittest, and they disappear. Um, And so over time, by just gradually making small steps, never going backwards, only going forwards or staying where you are, you can imagine that over time, if if evolution sort of worked in this hill-climbing way, that you you might imagine that it would produce very good results. And there is something to this metaphor, and there are aspects of our minds that are quite well evolved. So going back to the visual system, we can detect a single photon of light in a darkened room, which is as good as it could possibly get. So when it comes to how sensitive your eye is to light, we're at the top of the mountain. We've, we've gotten to the top of the mountain there. But on the other hand, if you look carefully at biology, you see that only some aspects are that good. There are other aspects that are perfectly silly. So if you look at the very same eye, the retina of our eyes is installed backwards. So we have all these wires going through the front, um, which leads to a blind spot in our eyes. And this is not a good design. There's no reason for it. Um, so that's not completely at the top of the mountain. We're sort of in top of the mountain in one respect, but not another. 
so the general problem with the metaphor is that it assumes that everything looks like Mount Fuji, that there's this nice, smooth surface that you could just sort of hike along and eventually you'll, you'll get to the top just by always taking these small steps. But the reality is that mountains don't always look like Mount Fuji. Sometimes they look like this, the Himalayas, where they're very jagged. And so if you have a system that is blind, and evolution is a blind system, and it's always taking small steps, it's easy for it to stay in one particular place and for there to be a much higher peak off in the distance that evolution is simply unaware of. So the idea that evolution should make things optimal or superlatively well-designed is really a misconception. It can do that depending on which of the many peaks in the mountain range it's on. But it can also screw up and, and lead to things that are sort of on some mountain that's tall, but not nearly as tall as you could get. Um, and so there are lots of things about the human mind and the human body that I think are not particularly well organized or well structured. My favorite example of this, my sort of poster child, um, is the human spine, which works. It gets the job done. Um, it allows us to be upright. It frees up our hands. But it doesn't necessarily do it in the best way possible. Probably most people in this room are old enough to have experienced back pain. And the human spine could have, I think, been better. We could have, for example, used, instead of a single column, we could have used four columns um, with shock absorbers, sort of like in a car, and we'd be able to go over bumps, and things could have been um, a lot more comfortable. But evolution just couldn't foresee that that's another possibility. Um, so the human spine is a good example of um, a word called kludge, which is the title of the book I learned from my father, who's sitting um, over there in the corner. Um, the word kludge, it's a clumsy or inelegant solution to a problem. It gets the job done, but it's not what you would do if you had any sense and had time to plan things in advance and so forth. And I think you can think of the human spine as a clue. It gets the job done, but it's not, not what you'd like. Um, here's, here's another favorite example of mine. Um, this was uh, from, I found on the web last summer. Graduate student bolts air conditioner onto car to beat Texas heat. So it works. The guy, instead of having you know, the car air conditioner fixed, takes the air conditioner out of his apartment, sticks it on top of the car, you know, uses a blowtorch, and, and, and so that, that's what a clue is. The argument of the book is that the human mind might in some ways be like a kludge, not just the human spine, which I think everybody would agree is a kludge, but also the human mind. It's clumsy, it's inelegant, it's sort of like this, gets the job done, but you know, maybe not the ideal way. Um, there's a famous uh, story about Apollo 13 where they made a substitute air filter using socks and duct tape and so forth. That's another um, famous kludge. You may have seen the, the movie Apollo 13. Um, and Rube Goldberg is probably what people in an older generation would think. In the younger generation, they all think of MacGyver and things like the tennis shoes that he made out of floor mats from a car and duct tape. And then this is my favorite slide. I won't be able to explain it for the podcast crew. Um, but in any case, one can always say, you know, I've got some materials available. I'm MacGyver, and what do I do? Okay. Um, evolution builds kludges for different reasons. So the reason that engineers build kludges is either because they're in a hurry, they don't have time to build something better, so that's what happened on the Apollo 13 mission. The astronauts would have died if they had waited to sort of make something proper to factory specifications, so they were stuck building something quickly. I think MacGyver did it for the ratings, so you can build um, kludges just because they're clever and fun and entertaining. Um, evolution builds them for several different reasons. One is evolution has no foresight. It can't say, well... I've been building these four-legged creatures for all these years. I think it would be really fun to build a two-legged creature. I wonder what the best way to support its weight would be, which an engineer might do, but um, evolution can't do that. And similarly, evolution has no hindsight. It can't say, well, 
these human beings, they've had a good run. They've been around for 100,000 years, but they're way too aggressive. They never listen to each other, and their spines really don't work very well. Let's just fix all of that, right? Evolution can't do that. It doesn't have hindsight to say, well, let's see how we did. And it's always in a hurry. So it, evolution doesn't have the luxury of saying, well... I see that there's some bugs with the human species. What's the hurry? We'll just take them offline for five years. We'll release human 2.0 after we, you know, we, we, right? Evolution can't do that. All it can do is at any given moment, there's a bunch of genes. They propagate, and, and you know, everything happens in the moment for evolution. No overhaul, no hindsight, no foresight. In Darwin's words, evolution is a process of descent with modification. And both of those words, descent and modification, are critical. Descent means that there's nothing that's completely new out there. Evolution can't start from scratch and say, I'm going to build a whole different kind of species. It's got to work with a tapestry that's already there. Um, or more properly with a set of genes that are already there. And so um, humans obviously can be traced to apes, apes can be traced to monkeys, and there's a long unbroken string all the way back to bacteria where each generation is only a little bit different from the generation before. Evolution proceeds through small changes. The modification is, is the change part. So there obviously there would be no change if every generation was identical um, to its offspring, but there's shuffling um, or the parents. So the parents and offspring are typically not identical because there's been shuffling of the genes. Um, so evolution proceeds in this way of gradual change, not in a way of you know, wholesale overhauls. Um, that means, for example, that the wing of a bird is built on the forelimb of a basic uh, design that you find in all four-legged creatures. So you get recurrent themes in evolution rather than and starting from scratch. The consequence of this um, is that evolution is less of an optimizer, the way that evolutionary psychology writes about it, and more like a tinkerer. And I hope my dad won't be offended if I say that sometimes he does a little bit of tinkering on occasion. Um, um, and I can sort of imagine my dad doing what's in this famous quote from Francois Jacob. He says, evolution's like a tinker who often, without knowing what he's going to produce, uses whatever he finds around him, old cardboards, pieces of string, fragments of wood or metal to make some kind of workable object. My dad sort of, you know, the, the other sense of the word clue is clever, and my dad's thinking, yeah, I got it to work with the duct tape and the scissors. What would we be talking about? And there's the shrug. So, um, so evolution is, is just like that. Um, a consequence is something that I call evolutionary inertia, on analogy to Newton's notion of inertia. So Newton's notion of inertia for physical objects is an object that's at rest tends to stay at rest. An object that's in motion uh, tends to stay in motion. And my notion is that evolution works in essentially the same way. That once evolution is in part of the mountain range, it tends to stay over in that part of the mountain range. Once evolution has gone in a particular direction, let's say building four-legged creatures with a single column to support its body weight, evolution is not likely to change gears abruptly and start um, building something completely different. Okay. Um, So evolutionary inertia means that new systems are built on old systems for better or worse. Now, the first part of the talk, in a way, isn't really new. If you really know your evolution, then you know Darwin and you might know Stephen Jay Gould. And Stephen Jay Gould talks to, talked about cases like this, like the panda's thumb. And his point was that if you could look at cases of basically evolutionary inertia, he didn't use the same term, you could find these remnants of the past that don't necessarily make sense from a design perspective. They're useless, they're odd, they're peculiar in Congress. He said, these are the signs of history. He said, let's pay special attention to things like the panda's thumb, where it's not really designed the way it's supposed to be, or the way, well, not supposed to be, the the way that it ought to be, but it just comes out in this particular way as, as a result of evolutionary inertia. But somehow, 
this idea has not really made it over to psychology. So when you read these explanations, some people call them just-so stories, um, when you read these explanations of evolution, you say this thing is true because um, it was useful for our ancestors to do such and such, nobody's really ever paying attention to the things that we were descended from, from what kinds of modifications might have been possible. Um, so that's where Kluge comes in. What I'm trying to do in Kluge is to reconcile the sort of naive notion of evolution as, as perfectionist um, with the fact that our minds are clumsy. I'm trying to say, well, when our minds are clumsy, why is that? What happened in evolution to give us the imperfections that we have? I'm not trying to argue that we're so far from perfection that it's sort of pointless and we should all go home, um, but I'm saying that the mind is a bit clumsy. It's good enough. It gets it done most of the time, but there are bugs left in the system, and I want to try to understand those bugs. So the example that I'm going to give today starts with human memory, which you probably already realize is not quite perfect. Um, and I'll talk about a kind of memory that human beings use, but that's really a product of descent with modification. It's a kind of memory that all creatures, basically all animals on this planet, use, seem to use as a system for memory. And I'm going to suggest that it's not a very good system for some of the things that we as hum human beings would like to do, but we're stuck with it out of evolutionary inertia. It's in place just like the spine of, of a four-legged creature is in place, and the rest of our minds are kind of built on this thing. I'm going to say it's sort of the wrong tool for the job, but you know, for evolution, it's the only tool that's available. It takes the off-the-shelf part, and, and we're stuck with it. But before I explain how human memory works, um, I want to say something about computer memory and how it works, because I think that the way that you can see that something is clumsy is if you can imagine a better design. And in this particular case, in the case of how memory works, we can imagine a better way that memory might have worked, which is the one that our computers use. Because our computers have much more reliable memories than we do. So our computers are better at us than arith at arithmetic. They're also better at memory. They're not better at everything. So computers can't recognize faces, for example, as well as people can. So again, our visual systems are better. But it turns out in the case um, of memory, that computer memory works generally, I think, a lot better than human memory. Well, why is that? The main thing has to do with the organization of computer memory. In computer memory, everything that you store in the computer goes in a particular location. There's a map that says this thing is going to go in the first location, this one's going to go in the second, the third, and so forth. So any particular piece of information, if you want it, you can just say, well, I want the thing that's in the 117th location within the computer. Um, which is a very nice system. It's sort of like safe deposit boxes. If you have safe deposit box number 117, the expectation is if you put in, I don't know, some old photographs and, and some bank notes, and you come back 25 years later, the same thing will be in that safe deposit box as you put before. And computers are basically built on that idea, that the programmer can deposit some piece of information, get it out later, um, knowing exactly the spot where it is. So that means, for example, that if you program a phone number and address in your cell phone, it stays there forever. So last night we visited sort of my um, intellectual grandmother. I had visited her house three years before. I typed in the address in my cell phone. It was there. We used it. We, we found our way there. Um, this obviously contrasts with, with human memory. So our memory is a whole lot less reliable. We can't reliably hear a phone number once and get it. So I get a phone call um, on my cell phone, and somebody says, you know, call me back at 623-4168. Um, oh, and by the way, it's in area code 917. And by the time I get to the area code, I've lost it, right? Unless I have a piece of paper to write it down. I can forget about it. And then I'm wondering, what is the code to press the thing so I can hear the voicemail again? Um, so our memory is, is, is obviously not as reliable as, as um, computer memory. Um, we need to hear things many times to learn them. Um, at Roland Park, I, I took a class with uh, 
uh, Joe Lynch, and he was fond of a class in Latin. He was fond of saying three times for the normal mind. The point being that we couldn't learn something uh, in a single trial. The reality being that that was probably optimistic. Most of the things, is, you know, three three times would be lucky. Um, okay. So sometimes some of the most basic things elude our grasp. And in here, um, a couple of sort of common examples and a less common example of, of greater significance. Um, the, the first one, um, actually, I'll go to the second. Where do I park my car? So this doesn't work in New York, but probably um, here in Baltimore, almost everybody has this experience. You park in some lot regularly, and on any particular night, you know that you're in that lot. There's no mystery that this is the lot you parked in every day, but you're not really sure where your car is in that lot. Well, why is that? I think one of the reasons is we don't have something very basic that computers do, which is an erase operation. So in a computer, once you've finished using some piece of information, you can erase it, you can update it. So um, if somebody changes their address, you change it in the computer's address book, and then you're just done with it. We keep these memories. So we still remember where we parked last week, even though it's the most irrelevant piece of information in the entire universe. Like Where you parked last week has no significance now, right? Because your car is no longer there. But you remember where you parked last Friday or last Thursday. Not very well, but when you ask your, your brain, you say, where did I park? It sort of just says, well, places that I've parked recently. And so you get confused between the seven different places that you parked in the lot that you park in every day. This is not an ideal system, I think. It goes without saying. The same thing happens with your keys. Um, it's the same kind of interference. You put your keys regularly in one place, but like if you're like me and you're on the road, I've been on the road for two weeks and so I'm in a different hotel every day. I don't have a place you know, in that hotel to put my keys, and that means you know, every day I have to allocate five minutes to find the keys. Um, and a more serious, um, um, if bittersweet example, is the same thing happens for pilots or parachutists or anybody who's got to do something regularly um, and it's important that they remember it. So pilots have to use checklists because they can forget, did I pull up the landing gear this time, right? They know they've generally uh, pulled it up, and that's what our memories are good at. It's good at saying, you know, 80% of the time I've done this or 90% of the time, but that's not good enough, obviously, for flying a plane. That's why a pilot has to use a checklist, and so um, I actually went and got this statistic. 6% of all skydiving fatalities can be traced to divers forgetting to pull the cord. That's not first-time skydivers, right? First-time skydivers, that's all they're thinking about. Am I going to pull the cord? Am I going to pull the cord? I'm not even sure they enjoy the flight, or they always tell you that they did. But after you've done it six or seven times, it's possible to get confused between the, the event this time and the event last time. Um, the reason for this, I kind of already alluded to it, is we don't have master maps. We can't say, I am going to store in register 117 the value of where my car is now. And I will have that memory in that spot every day. And every day when I park, I will update register 117. And then when I go out to get the car, I'll just look in register 117. be a perfectly simple system. We could have wished that we would have evolved that system, but we don't have it. Instead, we use cues or clues for what we're looking for. Um, a first metaphor I'll give you is a sh sort of shoebox full of photos. Like, most of the memories that we want are actually there, but the problem is usually in sorting out the memories that we want from, from all the other memories that are there, So, um, as in the examples that I just gave you. Um, since we don't know where everything is, whoops, I think, again, I want to change a slide here. But since we don't know um, what's in there, all we can do, I've already told you, that, I guess, that this is found in every species. Um, I'll emphasize that again in a moment. Since we don't 
know where things are. What we have to do is to use clues for things. And so you might imagine, for example, that when April and I were in school in ninth grade social studies, we probably had to um, memorize a list of American presidents, like in order or something like that. And so I should be able to ask anybody who went to, had a similar kind of education, who was the 16th American president? And of course, this would be, again, trivial for a machine to learn. You can store any table um, in a computer anytime. So one person can steal this information from Wikipedia, upload it, and it will be there forevermore for anybody to use. But most people would sort of be rusty on this. For, um, is that Gertrude Williams there? <laughs> um, so, uh, so I ask you who's the 16th president. You don't, you don't really remember. Um, and then I give you some kind of clue. And maybe it's a good clue for you and maybe it's not. So I tell you that the person I'm thinking of, um, not only was he the 16th president of the United States, but he was a good writer. Joanne. So, um, um, so I tell you, Joanne might, p- could probably answer this question for who was the 16th president because of her special training. But in any case, um, the average person, you say this person was a good pre- I mean, was the 16th president, they were a good writer, and maybe that clues it for you, maybe it doesn't. For me, it would because I know which of the presidents, or at least some of them, were good writers. I know W wasn't a good writer, and I can sort of you know, figure it out by the process of elimination. The rest of you, I have to say something like, he was the guy who freed the slaves or had the tall hat and the long beard, and then eventually you get it. But the point is, the way our memories work is we have these little clues as to what's going on, and we do our be- the best we can with those clues. And sometimes they're good, and sometimes we get confused. We remember the 10 other parking spaces because the clues aren't precise enough. Whoops. So this leads to lots of weird consequences. Like, for example, the posture that you're in um, affects whether you can remember something because you use that as a clue to remember. So all of you are sitting down now. If you try to recount later to someone else what you learned today and you're sitting down, you probably do a little bit better job than if you're lying in bed or you're standing up. So you use this sort of totally random stuff because you're so desperate to get stuff out of your memory because it's not organized in the way that a computer's memory is. Another famous study was with scuba divers. They memorized a list of words while they were underwater and then they get tested a couple days later. They do better if they're underwater than if they're on land despite the fact that you know, they've got a tube in their mouth, and really they should be concentrating on whether they're breathing or not. So um, they, we use all of these little cues because we're desperate, but it has sort of side consequences. So the cues don't always lead us in good places, as I'll tell you in a, in a moment. So there are lots of examples by which the basic organization of memory does not per- perhaps serve us well. Um, eyewitness testimony is probably the single most salient and, and pernicious one. So I mean, there are lots of people that have been falsely imprisoned on the basis of eyewitness testimony and so forth. And there are cases like the Sean Bell case that just happened in New York where um, this person was shot, I believe, on his wedding day by police officers. There were like 30 witnesses. Um, the police officers were acquitted. Maybe that was right, maybe it was wrong. But I think that for sure the reason that they were acquitted, I don't know enough of the details of the case, but the reason they were acquitted is because they brought in about 30 eyewitnesses on either side, and the 30 eyewitnesses had 30 different stories. So there's actually something in the New York Times um, website that I just saw last week where they list all of the witnesses. They've got a picture of each witness and the sort of main two things that each witness said, and there's, there's no agreement. So I mean, the basic question was, what did the guy say before the police officer shot him? And people just don't know, and why is that? It's because the memories that you have during the event get confused together, for example, with the memories after the event, when you're thinking about it, when you hear it on television. And because our memories are not organized in this systematic way like computers, everything can blend together. So eyewitness testimony is, I think, fundamentally unreliable. I mean, we can, we can sometimes get it, but the, you know, the better the cues are, the more distinctive the cues are, the better chance we have. But it's very easy for eyewitness testimony to become contaminated. 
Um, and that's one of the, the many consequences of the problem with our memory. I've already told you about the skydivers. Um, the second point that I want to make, which I think is in some ways a deeper point, is that once evolution committed us to this kind of kludgy system of memory where you use cues rather than location, um, it just kept going with that system. It didn't have the sense to say, well, if I were doing other stuff, would I want for that other stuff to have the same kind of memory, or maybe I should build a different kind of memory for that other stuff. Like, so human beings can rationalize, or, or sorry, they can reason about things, they can think deliberately, they can evaluate things. It would be nice, maybe, for that if we had a bit better control over our memory. You could have imagined when we evolved the ability to reflect that we would evolve a better memory system, but as, they, as I guess Steve Martin used to say, but no, we're stuck with this same um, the same system as, as, as ever, and so there are lots of consequences of that. So take, for example, the death tax versus the estate tax, which I think was one of the more brilliant, if evil, bits of spin doctoring in the last few years. Um, anybody hears about a death tax, they're automatically going to be opposed to it, even if they're sort of rational, careful thinkers. You hear death tax, and what do you think? You hear death, well, that's a terrible thing, and then tax you're going to tax somebody on their death? I mean, what a jip, right? Nobody, I mean, how could anybody possibly be for a death tax? Of course, it, say again? It's un-American. It, exactly, exactly. Um, an estate tax, on the other hand, well, who has estates? Well, that's rich people. That's not me. And, you know, why not take their money? No problem with that. So most people are not, um, you know, too, too unhappy to have an estate tax unless they actually have an estate and know what it is. Um, the, the thing about this is that this happens to all of us. Everybody sees these two things as deeply different, even though they're obviously the same. And you can catch yourself. I mean, if you're you know, a regular newspaper reader, you're an intelligent person, you can realize that they're the same. But you still have this kind of gut instinct that's very different for the two. Another example is 99% pure versus 1% toxic. You, you see the soap, it says 99% pure, and you're like, 99% pure? That's almost organic. I think I'll buy two. And then you think... 1% toxic, I'll just put this back, right? So, it's, again, it's the same thing, right? Any rational person can see that they're the same, but you can't help yourself. Um, this is called, in the literature, framing. How you frame something makes a big difference to how people understand it. The question is, why are we vulnerable to these things? So why would an optimally designed creature fall for this kind of stuff? And the answer, I think, again, goes back to memory. The nice way to think about it is a phrase also from um, computer programming, which is called garbage in, garbage out. That means you can have a program that's perfectly well written, but if the database is bad, you wind up with bad results. So you can imagine a GPS system that has all the trigonometry in the world and can read the satellite information. But if it has an out-of-date map, it's still going to give you bad directions, as is the case in our car um, this morning. But that's another story. Um, so garbage in, garbage out. The problem here is not that you can't think about what a death tax is or an estate tax, but that the thinking that you do depends on a biased sample of data. So when you think about a death tax, what comes to your mind is a different set of stuff because of the way that your memory works. You pull out memories about death, and that, that does not predispose you to the tax. And so... Um, we, we are vulnerable because we can't pull out the right things from our memory. It's not that we can't reason well, but we don't know when we've got reasonable data. More generally, as a species, we're pretty poor at scientific reasoning. Um, and I'm afraid this applies even to scientists who really have to struggle with what I'm going to describe now, which is something called confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is this notion that you tend to notice information that supports whatever your pet beliefs are or what your theories are, and you tend not to notice the theory that might go against it. So you come up with a theory, you ask your memory is there anything that supports this theory? And sure enough, your memory complies, and you're happy because it's your theory and you like being right. Um, 
However, what your memory does not do is to supply, typically, unless you're trained well, the counterexamples, the things that might have been better explained by other theories and so forth. There's a phrase which is that humans use make-sense reasoning. What that means is that they ask themselves, does this make sense to me? And they say yes, and they're done, when really they should say, well, is there any other hypothesis that, that might cover this data? So I can explain this as an Obama voter, but how would the Hillary Clinton voter? You know, you, people don't tend to ask that. They say, from my perspective, does this work? Um, and this is partly because the structure of memory makes that so easy to do. What pops up is the stuff that's consistent with your theory. Um, there are lots of other manifestations of this. I think the ultimate result is polarization. If you've got a creature that decides how much it wants to reason based on how happy a conclusion makes them, you wind up in real trouble. So, you know, a student of mine gets a C on a paper, or sorry, gets an A on a paper, an exam, let's say, and they're like, yeah, I studied hard, that's great, and then they move on to something else. If they get a C, they're like, oh, the exam was unfair, and so forth. You would never find someone with an A come up to me and say the exam was unfair, and so forth, right? So we reason harder about the things that we don't like, like the Cs, and we notice the confirmation evidence, and you get into this spiral where everybody thinks that they're right. Their deity is the one true deity, or their their political candidate is the one true candidate. So right now, in the Democratic Party, we have two candidates that are absolutely convinced that they're they're the one right candidate. I mean, you can make the argument that either of them would be fine, but we're sort of stuck because nobody wants to stand down. Um, a similar case is, is the classic question of, of who did a greater percentage of the dishes. So I say I did 60%, my wife says 80%. The ordering there is probably right, but the totals don't add up to 100%. Um, and they never do. You can ask any set of roommates who do this survey. Same thing with scientific papers. So I'll think that I did 80%, my graduate student will think they did 80%. And there's always going to be this kind of bickering in any collaborative endeavor. Why is that? Because people access the memories about what they did more easily than the memories about what other people did. And even worse, the brain isn't set up to compensate for that. So, I mean, you can sort of recognize this in the abstract, but in reality, you, you just remember your own cases. You don't remember what the other people do, and you forget to deal with it. We can try to correct for this and be more tolerant of the people that we live with, but it takes some effort. Okay, another example of all of this is... is um, the way that memory, I think, can actually exacerbate mental illness. I don't want to say that the particular clues that I'm talking about right now explains all aspects of mental illness or anything like that, but I think it actually contributes. So take, for example, um, somebody has a bad day at work. What do they do? They go home and they think about the bad day at work, and then they think about the other things that their boss does that really annoys them, and then the next thing you know, they're thinking about the other things that their girlfriend does that really annoys them, um, and then they put on some blues music and listen to breakup songs, and you get this spiral again, right? So um, the human mind is, is really built to go into these downward spirals. The same thing can happen with paranoia, um, and probably on the upside in, in, in bipolar disorder. So in mental disorders, this gets to be worse than it is in, in um, the normal condition. The normal condition, you can eventually sort of stop yourself. But the very fact that we're vulnerable to spirals, I think, is, again, a reflection of this evolutionary inertia, of the fact that evolution couldn't give us a memory system, or, or failed, I should say, to give us a memory system where you could search systematically and you could say, yeah, these things in the last three days, they really do suck, but if you look over the last three months, things are pretty good. Right? We're just not built to do that. We're built to notice the last three things and spiral around them. Um, a final, final case that I'll talk about briefly is memory may actually contribute to some of why human language is the way that it is. So Noam Chomsky always talks about a space of possible languages. He says human languages, you know, there are thousands of human languages, but they're not so different from one another. They all have certain things in common. Um, 
and how is it that human languages are the particular languages they are? So why, for example, are human languages different from computer languages? So computer programming languages are, are systematically different from, from human languages. Um, then there are mathematical languages, and people with time on their, too much time on their hands can learn things like Klingon and so forth. So there are many possible languages that you could imagine. Um, it happens to be the case that human languages have something that, again, seems to me like a quirk that you wouldn't just design if you were building from scratch, which is that human languages are all vulnerable to ambiguity. So there are different kinds of ambiguity. So, for example, the word run can either mean you know, jogging along or it can mean something that the Orioles score, at least that they used to score back in the days when I worked for them. I'm not sure how many. I hear they're doing well this year. So. But um, in general, um, the word run is ambiguous. Most words are ambiguous in some way or another. Um, that might be unavoidable, but what I think could have been easily avoided is we have what's called syntactic ambiguity. So I say a sentence like, the spy shot the cop with the revolver, and you interpret it one way. Let's say that the revolver is the instrument with which the spy shot the cop. Um, the, the spy had a choice. He could have used the revolver. He could have used the crossbow, and he decided to use the revolver. But it's also possible that it's the, the cop that had the revolver. There were two cops, one with the revolver um, and another with the nightstick, and he decided, you know, I better get rid of the one with the revolver. I'll, I'll deal with the nightstick guy later. Um, so that sentence is ambiguous. So is put the cup on the towel on the table, where it could either be that you're putting a cup on a towel that's already on the table or sort of the other way around. So language allows this. There's no reason in principle it should have to. Mathematics, for example, doesn't put up with this. So, you know, you put parentheses. Parentheses three times four, close parentheses, plus two is different from three times parentheses four plus two. So, I mean, there's no principled reason why a language should have to put up with this particular problem. But all human languages have it. Um, it's actually a pretty bad problem in as much as we tend not to be aware when our sentences are ambiguous, and sometimes we tend not to be aware when other people's sentences are ambiguous. I think we all kind of float through life some of the time, and we kind of hear the general gist, and we're not really worried if we got the details. Like, I think children do this all the time. They're used to, like, not understanding what's going on around them. But I think adults do this to some extent, too. Um, there was a great study where somebody, um, a colleague of mine at the University of Chicago, asked people to read aloud sentences like the spy shot, um, or the cop with a revolver, or Rick moved the grill under the porch. And he said, these are ambiguous sentences. So he wasn't, like, sneaking around like social psychologists usually do, and you find out three weeks later what the study was actually about. He said, look, these are ambiguous ambiguous sentences. Hello. Now, I just want you to read them aloud and tell me, does the other guy in the room understand them? And people wildly overestimate how well other people understand them. There's something called the curse of knowledge. We imagine that what we know, everybody else knows. And we're very vulnerable to this. So um, this really is, at least, I mean, it's not the most serious problem in, in the world, but it is um, a kind of odd fact about language that isn't necessary. It's led to plane crashes. There was one where somebody said, the mission control or radio tower said, where are you? The, the pilot says, at takeoff, and that's ambiguous between in the air and about to be in the air, and two planes crashed, 580 people died. Um, language um, could have been, I think, more efficient in this regard. Um, it turns out, I think, that we wouldn't be able to learn a perfect language if, if we tried. There's not perfect data on this, but there's actually a very interesting experiment that took place in 1960. A um, little-known linguist, James Cook Brown, wrote a paper in the Scientific American. I think it kind of got lost in the Chomskyan Revolution, where linguistics went in a different direction. This was sort of the last thing from an earlier era. But his idea was, well, languages aren't perfect. They allow all these ambiguities. And philosophers have been sort of um, curmudgeonly complaining about this for you know, thousands of years. He said, well, now we know from computer science and mathematics that the things that Bertrand Russell 
Russell did in the early 1920s and so forth. We know how we could build a perfect language. Let me do that. And furthermore, he said, I'll be able to test one of the favorite hypotheses in psychology and cognitive science and so forth, which is known as the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And that's the hypothesis that the way that you think depends on the language that you have. And so his clever idea was if I could straighten out the way people talk so that they would be less sloppy, there'd be no ambiguity, you'd have to make the premises of your arguments explicit and so forth, maybe that would make people think better, which I think was a, a brilliant idea. The only problem was that Nobody could ever learn the language. It's called logland for logical language. But it was like a square peg in a round hole. We don't want to learn perfect languages. We don't have the brain equipment to do it. And my argument is essentially the reason that we can't learn such languages is because they would require the very kind of memory that we don't have. They would require the computer memory. So it's easy for a computer to understand some long list of parentheses and things inside of it, like in mathematics, if anybody's ever seen the computer programming language Lisp, that's sort of all it is is a long pile of parentheses. I'm guessing maybe Zarar has seen it. Um, so if you, if you have a computer language, the computer has no problem understanding all of this, but the human brain is just not cut out for it. We're not cut out to learn a language that's syntactically unambiguous. So um, to summarize, in, in many ways, the human mind is the crown jewel of evolution. But that doesn't by any stretch make that it mean that it's perfect or even the best compromise that's imaginable. Just because we're good at some things doesn't mean that, that we're good at all things. Um, and recognizing which ones we're good at and which ones we're not might, might um, be a decent way of improving ourselves. Um, the One brief aside, since there's a movie out about intelligent design and evolution right now, I will just mention is all of these examples, of course, are strong counterexamples to any notion of intelligent design because they're basically examples of unintelligent design. Um, so some of our mental machinery is elegant, but much of it, I think, with a, for a little bit of foresight could have been a lot better. Um, and that's it. Thank you very much.